Daniel, come on, high five. That was a difficult reading. Good job. Okay, that wasn't easy. Daniel, well done. I uh, threw in some difficult words and names for you there, so well done for doing that. Okay, so it is really great to be with you, and um, he was way over-exaggerated, uh, a whole lot of stuff there. Uh, I'm just a very simple South African, and I, I hope that in some ways um, God's Word can provoke us and get us to think uh, a little bit. One of the things that I'm not very good at, I was actually thinking about this on the way here, um, I maybe should have been better prepared in some ways. I'm not the most practical, so we're not going to come out of here with like seven steps to, you know, love the city. I'm going to try and provoke some of our thinking, and then I'm going to leave that for our discussion times to think of the practical implications. Okay, I, I know I probably should have thought about that more. Maybe I'll try and do that la later for this afternoon. But um, I, I want to get the scriptures to challenge our thinking, and then we can work out the practical implications. So we're talking this weekend about loving the city. And um, Tim Keller from New York, I'm not sure if you are familiar with him, he said something about the church that he planted. He said, we don't want to just build a great church. We want to build a great city. And uh, that's a wonderful thought. Uh, what, is it, what would it be like for God to plant Shartin Anglican Church, not just for our well-being here, the, the hundred of us or the 200 of us that are part of the church, but that Shatin and One City and this area of Hong Kong may experience something of the goodness and the kindness of God. That there may be an element of the kingdom of God, heaven on earth, in this area. And so that's what we're going to think about this weekend. Now before we dive into this passage that Daniel read to us, I want to think a little bit about what is God doing in the world? Hey, that's a big question. What is God doing in the world? Well, he's doing lots of things. But I think if we were to summarize it, we could say God is doing a whole lot of work in the church. Okay, He's glorifying his name in the church through our relationships, through the way we work together. Um, he, he's pouring out a spirit upon us. He's sanctifying us. He's making us more Christ-like. He's doing work in the church. But he's also doing work through the church. And actually, one of the ways that he does work through the church is his work in us. So actually, as God sanctifies us and changes us and grows us, we become a picture of the glory of God. And so there, there, these two elements of God is at work in the church, and He's also at work through the church. He we mentioned earlier, you've been talking a lot about what does it mean for God to be at work in us, changing us, discipling us, letting the gospel renew us and change us. So, for instance... Um, Think of Ephesians, right? Ephesians uh, 3, Paul prays and says, I pray you'll be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, that you may be rooted and grounded in Christ's love. He says in Ephesians 4, I pray that you'll be renewed after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Thessalonians 4 says, this is the will of God, your sanctification. So, so God is doing a whole lot of stuff in us, but God's grace is in us doesn't stop with us. It's also meant to flow through us to the church and the, uh, through the church to the world around us. So Jesus says, "You are the light of the world." Jesus says, "We are to go and make uh, disciples of all nations. We are to be His witnesses to the ends of the earth." 
And if you think about it, John chapter 15 has this dynamic of both of these things at play, right? Remember, Jesus says, I am the true vine. You are the branches. He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. But those who abide in me will bear fruit. And so as we abide in Christ, God wants to work in us and then through us to the world around us. Maybe one way of saying it is, the church are both recipients of God's grace, but also agents of His grace. Okay, does that make sense? So we're recipients of God's grace. He changes us. He renews us. But as He renews us, He also sends us out. And so this weekend, what I want to do is to spend most of the time thinking about that second part, God's work through the church. What does it mean to be agents of grace in Hong Kong and as a church. Okay, are you, you following where I'm going? You understand what I'm trying to say? Okay, Elsa is, is following me. Thank you, Elsa. Okay, so we're thinking about what does it mean to be, for God to do His work in the city through the church. Uh, most of the church's focus is God's work in us. As He changes us, and we abide in Christ, we will bear fruit. But what does that look like? And so let's think about that. And so the first passage we're going to come to is this Micah 6 passage. And it's a very famous passage, and so if you've got your, your booklet, uh, let's look at it. The, um, the book of Micah was written about 750 B.C. It's uh, uh, Micah the prophet, he writes and he speaks to the nation of Israel, and it's a pretty scathing book. It's difficult to read. Micah has some sharp words for the nation of Israel, and the reason is because Israel, God's people, are not in a good place. There's rampant idolatry. There's rampant wickedness uh, throughout the nation. Rather than the gospel being made visible, showing them the, the, the nations, the wonder and the greatness of God, Israel has become just like the nations. There's very little to distinguish Israel from all the nations around them. And so the book of Micah is written like a lawsuit. I don't know if we have any lawyers here, any litigators uh, today. The book of Micah is written like a lawsuit. And and God brings His charge against His people. And so, look at what happens here. We, we start off from verse 1. Micah calls the witnesses. The Lord's going to bring His charges against His people. And He starts off calling these witnesses. And His case, he, His witnesses are the mountains. What He calls the enduring foundations of the earth. He calls all creation to listen to this charge that He's bringing against His people. Look at verse 1. Rise up. Plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear your complaints. Listen to the Lord's lawsuit, you mountains and enduring foundations of the earth. The Lord has a case against His people, and He will argue it against Israel. Okay, so God is going to bring His charges against Israel. He's, he's got this accusation against them. And just when you think He's going to bring His charges, He doesn't. He doesn't actually say what happens. And the reason is because... He's already told us earlier in the book of Micah. Chapter 3, God has detailed the charges that He brings against them. Look what He says in chapter 3, verse 5. This is what the Lord says concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who proclaim peace when they have food to sink into their teeth, but declare war against the one who puts nothing in their mouths. Okay, so what's happening here? The leaders of Israel, Israel's in a bad place because... They're corrupt, right? When their coffers are full and their wallets are full, when they've got lots of food on the table, peace, peace to Israel. Everything is fine. 
But as soon as their lives are difficult, as soon as people are paying them bribes, war, God is upset. They're using and abusing God's people. There's corruption that is rampant in Israel. And, and, and I wonder how many of us recognize that today. I don't know if this is a good thing to say. If this is a bad thing, you can scratch this from the recording. Okay? But the issue of justice is an interesting one because I find that even in our days, everybody is very keen on the idea of justice when it affects them, right? But if it doesn't affect me personally, I, I'm very happy to turn a blind eye. I don't know if you remember, um, at the time of the protests a few years ago, the social unrest 2019, I was very amazed how you know people were saying, this is a justice issue. We've got to stand for justice. This is wrong, and we've got to stand for what's, what's right. Oh, but, but where were those people when there's all the other injustice going on in our world, in our city? When there's 200,000 people living in caged homes, and there's, there's, there's rampant poverty, and there's rampant inequality. And that's what, that's what happened to Israel's leaders here. When things aren't going their way, this is a justice issue. This is wrong. We've got to do something about this. When their coffers aren't filled. But when things are fine, oh, peace, peace. Everyone, let's just maintain the peace. And, and Mike is challenging there. He's saying you only care about things that are going wrong when it affects you. Look at verse 9 here. He says, listen to this, leaders of the house of Jacob, you rulers of the house of Israel, you who abhor justice and make crooked everything that is straight. Her leaders issue rulings for a bribe. Her priests teach for payment. Her prophets practice divination for silver. Corruption and perversion of justice is rampant. And in matters of dispute, who's going to get the favorable outcome? The one who can pay the higher bribe. And so what ends up happening, the, the disadvantaged get further disadvantaged. Those who have access to opportunities get more access to opportunities. The rich get richer. The poor get poorer. And so this is God's charge to Israel. He's saying, rather than you being a light to the nations, rather than you standing out, you are just like the nations. And there's no difference between Babylon, Assyria, and Israel. The wickedness in those nations is what I see in you. You're not a picture of heaven and earth. You're not the gospel made visible. You're a mirror of the culture around you. And you're in it for yourselves. This is God's charge against His people. And so look what he says. Let's go back to chapter 6. He says, My people, what have I done? How have I wearied you? Testify against me. Indeed, I brought you up from the land of Egypt. I redeemed you from that place of slavery. I sent Moses and Aaron and Miriam ahead of you. My people, remember what King Balak did, what he proposed. What Balaam, son of Beor, answered him. And what, what happened at Acacia of Dilgal. What's happening here? What's he talking about? God is recounting all the ways that He's led God's people graciously in their story. He's reminding them of their story. He's saying, Let, let's just talk about e Egypt for a, a little bit. You were slaves in Egypt, and I sent Moses to deliver you by the blood of the Lamb. Remember my grace that I had towards you. He says, remember um, Balak. Do you remember the story of Balak? Balak was the, uh, uh, the foreigner who hired Balaam to come and curse God's people. And what did happen? God told Balaam to turn the curse into a blessing. He's saying, remember all the years of my faithfulness. Remember how year after year after year, as you have 
exhausted my patience. I've been exceedingly gracious to you. He's reminding them of God's grace to them. And he's saying, my grace to you was meant to flow through you to become grace to others. Just look at what I've done to you. Let's talk about Israel. Let's talk about Egypt. Let's talk about Jericho. As you're making your way through the promised land, how I saved you by the blood of the Lamb and delivered you from Egypt. My grace that was directed to you was never meant to end with you. It was meant to flow through you to make my grace visible to others. Okay, you following the argument here? So God is reminding them of His incessant, unrelenting grace towards them. And now He's saying, why is it that you don't know how to extend that grace to others? Look what's happening, 3 verse 11. Her leaders issue rulings for a bribe. Her priests teach for payment and her prophets practice divination for silver. So God's got this charge against Israel. He's saying, you have been recipients of my grace, but you're not extending that grace to anyone else. You're using and abusing my kindness to you and you're still just living for yourselves. It's a serious charge. So what should Israel's response be? How should they respond? God has charged them of unrighteousness and injustice. He's charging them of being unfaithful to His covenants. They've not kept His ways. So how should Israel respond? Well, God's people have some ideas. And so look at verse 6. Look at what they say. They say, uh, I think, He says, What shall we bring before the Lord? How shall I come and bow down before God on high? In other words, Israel are saying, Okay, Lord, we, we hear your accusation. We get it. What do you want us to do? How can we soothe your anger? What is it that you want us to do to put things right? Well, what will be pleasing to you? Should I come before him with burnt offerings, with a year-old calf? Will the Lord be pleased with 10,000 rams? With 10,000 streams of olive oil? God, what do you want from us? How should we worship you? What would you like us to do that we be pleasing to you? Should I give my firstborn child for my transgression? The offspring of my body for my sin? God, is that what you want? You want even my son? Will that please you? Will that make you happy? What is it that you want him to do? Should we climb the highest mountain? Should we fast for a hundred days? Well, what can we do to please the Lord? Well, look at God's response. Look at verse 8. Mankind, He has told you what is good. And what is it that the Lord requires of you? But to act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. You see, for the Israelites, they knew that things weren't good, right? I mean, God's bring the strong word to them. God's bring this charge against them, and their response is, okay, fine, what do you want? You, you want more money? You want more offerings? You want me to write a check? How many sacrifices do you want? Do you want a thousand, ten thousand, a hundred thousand? What do you want from us? And God's response is, I don't want your stuff, I want your hearts. I mean, that's the issue here, right? Their hearts are crooked. Their hearts are living for themselves. God's saying, I don't want your stuff, I want your heart. But how was that manifested? How, how, how's that seen? And what does it look like for, for God to have their hearts? 
Well, surprise, surprise, there's both an internal element, but there's also an external element. There's both a vertical component, as a God, but there's also a horizontal component. God's saying, I want your heart, but the way that that's manifest is the way that you treat those around you. The poor and the marginalized, those that are hurting. And so I want you to do justice. I want you to love mercy. I want you to walk humbly with me, your God. You see, you see what God's saying here? He's calling them back to Himself. But He's not just calling them to do more religious stuff. He's saying, I want your heart, but I also want the way that you relate to me to, be, to correspond to the way that you relate to others. And in the Bible, the way that we relate to God always, or let me put it this way, the way we relate to one another is always in some ways a reflection of the way we relate to God. So it's impossible to say, I'm humble before God when I'm being arrogant before others. It's impossible to say, I come before God simply, humbly, don't need to justify myself purely by His grace, but I'm always trying to justify myself before others. There's a direct connection in the way we relate to God and the way we relate to others. And we see this in the New Testament when, uh, we're going to look at it this afternoon actually, when a religious leader comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, what, what, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, what, are the, what is the commandments? What are the greatest commandments? And he says, to love God for your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love others as yourself. And so God is calling Israel back to himself. He's saying, I want radical devotion, but that radical devotion is going to play itself out in the way that you love and serve others. And so he has told you, what does he require of you, a man? To, to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. See, friends, these two things, to love God and to love others, to serve God and to serve others, to walk humbly before God and to walk humbly before others, they cannot be separated. They're almost like two sides of the same coin. They, go, they always go together. And throughout Scripture, we see this. God's grace to us is always meant to flow through us to those around us. Okay? Does that make sense? Okay? So, uh, here in Micah, God says, He has told you what He requires. Well, where did God tell them? In Deuteronomy chapter 10, we see this. Uh, maybe we can go there. Deuteronomy 10, He says this, Now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? And he gives them a very thorough evangelical answer. To fear the Lord your God, to walk in His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul, to keep His commandments and His statutes, which I'm commanding you. Very straight down the line, evangelical, reformed answer, right? What does God require of you? Love God above all else. Oh, but then look what he says, verse 17. For the Lord your God is God of gods, Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God, who is not partial and does not take bribes. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Therefore you, O people of God, love the sojourner as well. 
for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You see what he's doing here? He's saying your story and the way that I treated you with mercy and grace when you were absolutely lost in Egypt is the same way I want you to treat others. He's applying the gospel to them and saying my grace to you is meant to flow through you to others. He's told you, man, what does the Lord require of you? To love justice, to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. And so let's think about these three things for a little bit, okay? What, what does that actually mean? What is justice and what is mercy in the Bible? And so let's do a little bit of a, a biblical kind of overview. The word justice, uh, anyone know the Hebrew word justice? Very, very common word. It's a thousands of times in the Bible. It's the word mishpat. And uh, it's an extremely common word in the Old Testament. It's translated many different ways. But in its broader sense, justice in the Bible means putting right what has gone wrong. Okay? It's actually used um, in Exodus 26 to describe the plan, the blueprint for the temple. And so when God is giving instructions to Moses, this is how I want things to, to be done. This is the layout. This is how I want you to organize things. This is the blueprint or the justice for my temple. And in a corresponding way, it's God's blueprint for humanity and the way the world is meant to, to work. It's how things are meant to be. And when things are out of sync with that, it's putting right what is wrong with the world. Now, of course, one of the ways that justice can be done is through fair punishment. Sometimes in the Bible, mishpat means that, punishing justice, making someone pay for crimes that they've committed. But actually, often in the Bible, mishpat means restorative justice. It means restoring the broken, lifting up the downtrodden, bringing safety to the vulnerable, standing with the powerless, restoring dignity and equality and fairness to those that have been pushed to the margins of society. And so that's why in the Bible, in the Old Testament, often it talks about looking after the widows, the orphan, the immigrant, the poor. It's those that society has pushed to the margins, the, the outsiders, it's bringing them in and saying, you are fully credited members of society. So for instance, Zechariah chapter 7, I think we got it, it says, this is what the Lord Almighty says, administer justice, show mercy, compassion to one another, do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the immigrant, or the poor. Now, a quick question. Why does the Bible often talk about these four? The widow, the fatherless, the immigrant, and the poor. Any ideas? Why, why are those four? Pushed aside, yeah. Okay, looked down upon in society as meaningless, not much status, stature, okay, yeah, that, that's one reason, helpless, great, so these are the most vulnerable, right, they, they, they don't have the structures around them to protect them, they're the most vulnerable, um, they are most susceptible to abuse, they don't have uh, the, yeah, the structures to look after them, and these are the very people that are most often going to be downtrodden. And so God says, you nation of Israel, go out of your way to restore the structures to make sure that they are safe and taken care of and not abused and taken advantage of. So this is justice. To, to act justly is to find ways that people that are often pushed to the outskirts or taken advantage of are restored and given a sense of dignity and safety in, uh, in society. 
Okay, the second thing he calls them to is to love mercy, or some translations say loving kindness. And the Hebrew word here is the word chesed. It doesn't so much have to do with actions, it has to do with the, the attitude of our hearts. And so often the Bible describes this as God's steadfast love. His steadfast love to His people, but He also calls His people to act with steadfast love to those around them. And uh, Tim Keller says this, At first, we may think acting justly and loving mercy are two different things, but they're actually not. Acting justly puts emphasis on the action, what we require to do, but being full of mercy and compassion describes the attitude or the motive behind the action. So God wants us to go and do justice, but how do we do it? We don't do it with a savior complex. Stand back, I'm here to save you, right? Well, thank goodness that we are finally here. Oh, your lives are going to be so much better because of us. We don't do it and look down on people with a sense of arrogance or superiority. We do tenderness and compassion in our hearts. Let me provoke us a little bit. Uh, our church, Watermark, I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with a ministry called S&D, Sons and Daughters. Anyone familiar with that ministry? Sons and Daughters is a ministry that... Um, reaches out to uh, workers in the red light districts here in Hong Kong. And so they do outreaches in, um, uh, all over Hong Kong uh, to the sex workers of Hong Kong. And it, it's interesting because it's, it's an industry where those ladies who work in that industry are, I mean, they, they're just treated like, like absolute nothing. I mean, they're just treated the most disgustingly, right? it's so easy as a church to look down and think oh sex workers right prostitutes god you know really you 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 just don't have any dignity for yourself and you can look at these people that are being abused and taken advantage of often sold into slavery not by choice sometimes sold by their parents and we can really look down at people like that and yet jesus calls us to reach out to people like that with this loving steadfast love, with this chesed love, with this deep tenderness and compassion and mercy in our hearts. To look after the most vulnerable and the poor and the marginalized and to do it with a, a compassion and a tenderness that Jesus would have for those kinds of people. Because that's what Michael calls his people to. Yes, do justice, but you can do justice arrogantly. You can do justice with the savior complex. You know, I come from South Africa, and if you are familiar with South Africa, um, there's this long history of, of racial injustice, and so there's massive poverty. 48% unemployed, um, uh, almost 90% of the wealth is in the hands of white people, 25% um, of Cape Town lives on less than uh, $2 a day, just incredible, incredible poverty. And one of the things that white people like me often, often go into these areas with this real savior complex. Okay, here we are. We, we are going to come and deliver you. We're going to come and build houses and provide jobs and do sanitation. And you can go and do justice with such a sense of superiority and arrogance. And that's not what God calls us to. He says, do it with such compassion and mercy in your heart. Seeing yourselves as co-equals made in the image of God. He has told you a man what does he require to do justice and to love mercy. But then there's a third thing in the Bible. Uh, it's not in our passage, but it's the word tzedekah, which is the word for righteousness. And 
When we think of righteousness, we often think of someone who's either morally superior or very religious. But the word righteous in the Bible actually has to do with our right relationships. It's the way that we relate to one another. It's the way we handle our relationships, both with God but with one another. And Alec Motier, a very famous Old Testament scholar, he says that the righteous are those who are right with God and therefore committed to putting right relationships with one another. And so in Scripture, being righteous is not so much about personal piety, it's about these relationships, treating one another as image bearers of God with dignity and equality and how they deserve to be treated. And so this is God's call to His people. I want you God's people not just to be recipients of my grace, but to be agents of my grace in the city around me, to, to speak up, to speak righteously. Actually, Proverbs 31, I think we have it, I'm not sure. Proverbs 31 says this, Speak up. Judge righteously. Well, what does that look like? Well, speak up for those who have no voice. Pursue justice of those who are dispossessed or disadvantaged. Defend the cause of the oppressed and the needy. This is part of what it means to be God's people in the city of Hong Kong. Here's another verse, Jeremiah chapter 9. God says, this is what the Lord says. Very famous verse. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boasts in this, that he understands and knows me. Okay, well that's wonderful. Well, what does he know about God? I mean, the wise man is the person who knows God. Well, who is this God? That I am the Lord who practices mercy, justice, righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Old Testament scholar uh, J.N. Oswald said this. It's a long quote. I think we've got it up yet. Let's read it together. He says, When God called the rulers of His people to do justice and righteousness for His people, this did not mean to enforce some abstract law code or merely ensure the rights of His subjects. Rather, it meant to be so in tune with the sovereign God of creation, the author of life, so in tune with His character and His wishes, that his rightness, his order of life, would be made to prevail in the nation, with the inevitable result that the good, which is inherent in the creation of a good God, will be unleashed upon the earth. You see what he's saying there? He's saying, when God calls his people, saying, I want you to do justice and mercy and righteousness, what, he want, what he's saying is, I want the nature and the character of who I am to pervade through you in your relationships to those around you. Now, here's the challenge, right? One of the challenges is, in the Old Testament, Israel was both the people of God, picture of the church, but also a nation, right? We don't live in Israel anymore. And so the church and the state is divided, and so sometimes the, the laws in the nation of Israel are difficult to apply to us. I mean, we can't go and just change your Hong Kong's laws and make Hong Kong a theocracy. Uh, you know, that, that's not going to work anymore. So in some ways, we're not going to be able to bring heaven to earth like Israel is meant to be a picture of. And we're not going to fully bring heaven to earth like we're going to have in glory one day. But still God's call is for the church to be such a picture of heaven on earth the way we relate to one another, the way we treat those around us, the way we treat our colleagues and our, uh, those that work in our home, 
the way we treat those that are marginalized and suffering in society, that the church in some small way is a picture of the good God and His good creation in our city. Okay, does that make sense? So, I'm not saying in any way that Hong Kong is going to be heaven on earth in its entirety. We live in a broken world. One day Jesus is going to come back. But the way the church is meant to love those around them is meant to in some ways be a prophetic picture of what Eden was and what glory is going to be like because the God of mercy and justice has so touched our hearts and transformed our lives that now we relate to those around us in a similar vein. So as we come to close this first session, I want to give us just two main reasons. Why, why is this? I want to give us two motivating reasons for this. Why is it that the church should do this? Apart from just the fact that God's word tells us we should, why should we do this? And um, the first reason is because God identifies with the poor and the vulnerable. Um, do, you know the fra- do you know what I mean when I say name dropping? Do, you, do anyone know what name dropping is? Right? Name dropping is when you, you're having a conversation with somebody and you just casually drop into the conversation the name of somebody really famous or important that elevates your status, right? So you, you, you're having a conversation with someone and say, yeah, you know, I was, just, I was just on the phone to my friend Jack Ma the other day. Oh, we were talking about the, the market. And, or you say, oh, you know, I was just texting with Elon Musk the other day and I was asking him about his plans for his Twitter. And suddenly everyone's like, what? You, you, know, you know Elon Musk? You know Jack Ma? Or um, someone spoke about basketball. I don't know anything about basketball players. Who's a famous basketball player? Who's a famous basketball player? LeBron. LeBron James. Okay, LeBron James. So, so you, you're talking with, with your buddies, and, you, uh, and you're talking about how you, know, you once got this email from LeBron James, and, and that, that's name-dropping, right? Well, in the Bible, God does something very similar. Except who is it that God says that He is close to? It's not the powerful and the rich. And the famous, it's not the celebrities, it's the poor and the marginalized and the vulnerable. So listen to Psalm 68. He says, He is a father to the fatherless, the defender of widows. And we read this again earlier and again, again and again. God throughout the scriptures says, This is the one that I draw near to. Tim Keller comments on this. He says, One of the main things that God is doing in the world is identifying with the powerless and taking up their cause. And the, the strange thing is, this was absolutely scandalous in the Old Testament. In, in the ancient world, all the deities would associate themselves with uh, cultural elites, the kings, the priests, the military captains, not the outcasts or the vulnerable or the poor. And yet in the Scripture, when God takes His stand, He always stands not with the military leaders, not with the powerful, but with the poor the marginalized, the vulnerable, the outcast, the widow, the orphans, the immigrants, the fatherless. It's those who are most vulnerable, most open to being abused, that God has a special heart for, and therefore they ought to be in our hearts as well. Okay, so that's the first reason. Because of God identifies with the poor and the marginalized. Here's the second reason. Because of God's mercy and kindness to us. 
don't know if you picked it up earlier. We spoke about it. Um, how many times in the Old Testament God says, show mercy to those around you as I showed mercy to you. And how often he appeals to the Exodus and he's saying, you were slaves in Egypt. You were suffering there. You cried out to me and I heard your cry. Uh, think of Exodus 2, I think it is, or 3. God says, I have seen the oppression of Egypt. I know what's going on. I have heard their cry. And so I have come down to do something about it. God says, my mercy to you is the same way that I want you to treat others. Uh, about 250 years ago, there was a pastor um, by the name of Robert Murray McShane. I don't know if you've heard of him. One of the things he's most famous for is he wrote a, a Bible reading plan called the McShane Bible Reading Plan. Anybody heard of that? No? Okay. He was an amazing man. He was a Scottish uh, pastor. He died at the age of 29. And by that age, he had um, just lived an incredible life already. Uh, he's, one of the things he's most famous for, I don't know if you know this phrase, he says, for every one look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. He is altogether lovely altogether beautiful, even for the chief of sinners such as me. Do you know that phrase? For every one look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. Robert Murray McShane. But Robert Murray McShane, um, he was trying to urge his congregation to pour out their lives for the sake of the marginalized and the hurting and the vulnerable and the poor. And he was trying to urge them to use their wealth and their riches, they were a very wealthy congregation, towards the poor and the marginalized. But the problem was, his congregation weren't listening to him. And he, they were coming back and saying, whenever I've done that, people have taken advantage of my kindness. They've used the money that I've given them for something other than what I wanted. They didn't buy food. They went and bought alcohol. Or, you know, they, you can't trust these poor people, what they're going to do with our kindness. Or if you give them a hand, they're going to take an arm. And this is what the congregation was coming back with. And so look at what Robert, Robert Murray McShane answers. He says, now, some people may say, but my money is my own. But friends, might not Christ have said, my blood was my own, my life is my own? And where would we have been if Jesus had treated us like that? Well, some people might say, but the poor and the destitute are undeserving. But friends, might not Christ have said of you and I, they are wicked, they rebel against my Father's plans. Shall I lay down my life for these undeserving people, I would rather give my life for the angels. No, dear friends, Jesus Christ gave his blood for the undeserving, for you and for me. Well, some might say, but the poor will abuse our kindness and take advantage of our generosity. But friends, might not Christ have said the same of us and with far greater truth? Jesus Christ knew that thousands would trample his blood under his feet and most would despise his death on the cross. And that many would use his mercy as an excuse to sin even more. And yet he gave of his own blood. My dear Christian friends, if you would want to be like Christ, I urge you, give much, give often, give freely to the outcast, to the poor, to the thankless and those who seem undeserving. Christ is glorious and Christ is happy. And so will you be. It's not your money that I want, it's your happiness. Remember Jesus' own words, it is far more blessed to give than to receive. Friends, think about that. Where would we have been 
if Christ had treated us as we deserved? Where would we have been if Christ had been careful and cautious with his mercy? Where would we have been if Christ had been calculating with his blood? Christ freely and lavishly gave to us when we didn't deserve it, when we were his enemies, when we were shaking our fists at God, Jesus Christ poured out his blood for enemies such as us. Undeserving, vulnerable, outcasts of his grace. And by his grace he brought us in. And now Jesus says, made the church exhibit that same kind of grace to those around us. Friends, as we consider God's call to us, let us join him in this great work in the world. But let's never forget that the basis of our works of grace and mercy is the great grace and mercy that God has exhibited to us. Friends, let us remember when we were dead in our sins and had nothing to offer, God sent His Son to come and find us, to hang on the cross for us, to lay down His life for us, to bring those of us that were outcasts into His family, that we could be made right again. And friends, if God has not left us to ourselves, let's not leave others to themselves. If God has treated us as we so deserve, where would our future be? Friends, Christ came to the lost and to the broken, to sinners like you and I, and He poured Himself out that we might have hope. And so now, what does God require of us? But to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with Him in this city and in this world in which He's called us. Let's pray together. Is that alright? Can we pray? Okay, let's pray. Father, as we've uh, looked at these scriptures together, um, God, just as this week I've been freshly challenged, Lord. God, I confess that it is so easy to stay in my Christian bubble, to be so involved with church work and activity and discipling and meeting up with people. Life is so busy, God. There's kids and work. There's so many things that are going on. And Father... It's so easy just to slightly harden our hearts, to slightly just focus on our own needs, and to forget the needs that our city is so broken and so hurting, that there's so many people here, God, that are really struggling. And God, we want to be a church that takes your gospel to people. We want to take the good news of Jesus. We never want to just become a social gospel church. God, we want to take the, the wonder of Christ and the cross. But God, I pray, won't you impress upon our hearts, God, a sense of your mercy and compassion, God. I pray, God, that our hearts will break for the, the pain of the city, Lord. And I pray, God, that you will open our eyes to see the hurting and to see what's going wrong and to see the many areas that require your people to move in there. God, I pray for um, Shotton Church, Lord, that you will connect this church, God, to opportunities, that you will give the leaders wisdom, God, how to do that, what avenues to pursue, what ministries to partner with, how that we as a church, God, can reach out to those that are around us, that we, God, will be a picture of heaven on earth. God, help us, and, and, and by your Spirit, God, once you come work in our hearts, Lord, that we will be those who love justice, love mercy, and walk graciously and humbly with you. We pray this in your powerful and your gracious name. Amen. Amen.